Well, Christmas is right around the corner, and uh, so I want to talk a little bit about Santa Claus. Um, I think it's not a secret. I'm not a real big fan of Santa Claus, just because I just feel like it's kind of taken away the true meaning of Christmas. In fact, that was one of the first fights my wife and I had was she came home with this mechanical Santa Claus, and I was like, take that thing back to Target. You know, I just, I don't know, just to me, it always just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. You know, it's kind of a personal thing where I felt like, gosh, you know, so many people are wrapped up in Santa, and that has nothing to do with Christmas. But this week, I did an interesting thing. I studied a little bit about Santa, and I got to tell you, God's working on my heart. <laughs> because, okay, do you realize that, that Santa Claus, I mean, the man from whom all of this is, uh, you know, originated from, was actually was a real man named Nicholas, uh, Nicholas of, uh, of Mira, or Saint Nicholas, because he was the Bishop of Mira. Uh, Nicholas was actually a pretty amazing man. He was given a, a huge inheritance from his father, and he used that money to give gifts to the poor. Um, but beyond that, Nicholas, Nicholas lived during one of the most uh, atrocious times in human history. Uh, he lived during the reign of Diocletian. Okay, and if you remember your history books, Diocletian was a Roman emperor who was so against Christianity, so anti-Christian, that he had a group of executioners, and they were martyring Christians so often that these executioners would get so exhausted they had to go in rounds. They're just so excited. Oh, I had to kill another guy, another Christian, another Christian. I mean, just a massive slaughter of Christians. And that is when Nicholas lived, was during the reign of Diocletian. And, and Nicholas was so committed to G Jesus Christ that he actually was persecuted for his faith. And because Nicholas refused to deny the name of Jesus Christ, he was branded with hot irons. And they began to take pliers to his skin and tear his flesh apart because he refused to deny the name of Jesus Christ. That's who Nicholas was. And when Diocletian's reign kind of ended, the persecution of Christians subsided, but then there arose heresy in the church. Uh, where, where pastors were saying things about Jesus that weren't true. And Nicholas, being the bishop of Mira, wouldn't stand for that. In fact, he was in a council with, with all these other pastors, and one of the pastors had written a song about how Jesus Christ is not God. And this pastor stood up during one of these meetings and began to sing this song about how Jesus Christ is not really God. Nicholas walks up to the man and punches him in the mouth. <laughs> Ho, 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 you know. <laughs> and uh, at that point, Nicholas then was taken off of this council. Nicholas was taken off of this council and spent the latter years of his life founding orphanages and, and helping needy children. And so when you see Santa, I mean, I still won't buy one, but if, if you see, when you see Santa, I mean, I, I'm hoping that when you see that, that's what you'll remember now. Okay, the next time you see Santa Claus, forget about these fairy tales about him trying to stuff his body down a chimney and, uh, and, and think about, wait, no, no, no. Who Nicholas was, was a man who was willing to, to persevere persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. Who Nicholas was, was a man who stood for that Savior who was born 2,000 years ago and refused to listen to heresy and false teaching. That's what the man stood for. In fact, the Bible teaches in 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, everyone who wants to live a godly life 
in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you catch that? Everyone or anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible says there's no way you can pursue what God wants you to pursue. There's no way you can speak up and stand for the things that God has called you to without going through some sort of persecution in life. Because if you stand for this book, you will be persecuted. And some of you may be sitting here and saying, well, I've never really been persecuted for my faith. Well, you probably haven't been real outspoken about it either then. Because when you start speaking up for the truth, you're going to face persecution like Nicholas did, and as many did around the world. In fact, the Bible says in Luke 6.26, it says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. If everyone just thinks you're the greatest guy, the greatest woman on this earth, if everyone believes that about you, then you've been going around just trying to please people. And you haven't stood firm for what is true. Because this is not a popular book. Jesus Christ is not the most popular man. There are people who cannot stand the name of Jesus, and the more you stand up for him, the more you will see that. And you guys, as we talk about this church in Smyrna, you know, in in Revelation here, i got to tell you something about this city and the Christians in this city. These were people, these were some of the strongest believers who existed during that time. Okay, remember Jesus is is speaking to different churches now. He spoke to Ephesus, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. This letter that we study today is to the church in Smyrna, and these are some of the strongest believers on the earth. And the reason why they are the strongest people on the earth is this. If you were a Christian during that day and age, the most dangerous place for you to live would have been the city of Smyrna. And the reason is it was during the reign of Domitian, the Roman Emperor Domitian, and uh, there was all sorts of persecution during that time. Um, Not only that, but the people in this city, in Smyrna, listen to this, the people in that city were required to worship the emperor. In fact, they set up an altar, and every single person was required by law to go to this altar and offer incense and burn incense to the emperor. Now, if you're a Christian at that time, you realize you can't do that. But the problem is this. If you don't burn incense to the emperor, you don't get a certificate. They would give you, the Roman authorities would give you a certificate after you burned incense and worshipped the emperor. They would give you a certificate. And so everyone that had done it that year would have a certificate. The Roman soldiers would go around and if they found you without a certificate, you would die. And so Christians back then who said, we can't worship a man, we worship God and God alone, they were in fear of their lives. They had to be in hiding. They couldn't, they couldn't get out, go buy food, whatever. They didn't want to be seen by these Roman guards because that would mean their lives. So do you think there are a lot of casual Christians in Smyrna? Can you imagine being a Christian at that time? I tell you, people who stood for their faith, they really believed in it. And that's why this church was, uh, was so amazing, because with all these people being martyred, they still held their ground. And that's why Jesus addresses this church the way that he does. I mean, look at this very first sentence in, in verse 8. Look at how Jesus addresses this church. In Revelation 2, verse 8, he says, To the angel or to the messenger 
of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Okay, how does Jesus, what does he call himself? In this letter, he says, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life again. Remember when he was addressing the church in Ephesus? He says, this letter is from the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hand. That's what he called himself. Here he calls himself the one who died and came to life again. I think there's a reason why he calls himself that. He's saying, look, I died and I rose again. And now he is speaking to a group of believers who most likely were going to die for his name. And he says, look, I died and I came back to life and I'm writing this to you. Because some of you will die in my name, but you'll come back to life just like I have. It was a word of encouragement saying, look, your fate is the same as mine if you will hold on to your faith. So these are pretty powerful words to a pretty incredible church. He goes on in verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions. That must have been so uh, rewarding to hear those words from Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, imagine if this were the church in Smyrna. We're scared for our lives. And you, I, I come and I go, hey, you guys, I got a letter from Jesus Christ himself. Through John, this is what he said to us. He says, I know your afflictions. It's got to feel good for Jesus to say, look, I know the pain you're going through. The word for affliction here is the word for intense physical pain. It's the same term used for childbirth, which I hear hurts. Um, He says, you know what? I know the intense physical pain you've endured for my name. Some of these people in that church, they were probably beat up. People coming in scarred, bruised, everything else. And Jesus says to them, I know what you've gone through for me. It's got to feel great to know that Jesus saw it all. They're going to be rewarded for it. I know your afflictions. He says, I know your poverty. This term for poverty here isn't the normal word that they would use for someone of a lower income. The term here referred to a person who owned absolutely nothing. No food, nothing. And Jesus is saying to this church there in Smyrna that's gathered together, look, I know the pain you've gone through. I can see that you have nothing to your name. But then he says in the next phrase, he says, yet you are rich. Jesus says, I see you as rich though. And I'll explain that in just a second. But then he says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are really a synagogue of Satan. He says, I know how you've been slandered by some of these people who will call themselves Jews. He says, but they're not really Jews. These are not Jews in the sense and the way God sees Jews of the people who are truly followers of God. He says, these people are followers of Satan. See, what was going on is that there were some Jewish people that were exposing the Christians to the Romans. You know, because they had to be in hiding and some of the Jewish people who were against and persecuting the Christians would go to the Roman authorities and say, hey, we know where the Christians are. And what Jesus is saying, listen, those are not true Jews. Okay, they may call themselves Jews. They may even be Jewish of descent. But in God's eyes, because remember in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were the followers of God. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 2. This this will clarify it for you, I hope. Romans chapter 2. And 
In Romans chapter 2, verse 28, listen to what God says about what it means to be Jewish. Romans 2, 28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. See what he says in that passage? He says, in God's eyes, the man who is truly Jewish, it doesn't mean that he's necessarily just from physical descent. He goes, the true Jewish person, the true follower of God, in that sense of the term Jew, is the one who's really made a heart decision, a true change to follow God. And so here in Revelation, he says, look, these people that call themselves Jews that are turning you in, they're not really Jews in God's eyes. Okay, don't think that they're the people of God persecuting you. They, they may be Jewish by nationality, but they're not truly Jews. They're a synagogue of Satan. And so Jesus says to them, look, I know, I can see all these people who, who do it in the name of God that are persecuting you. I see the fact that you are wounded, you're afflicted. I see the fact that you own nothing, you have nothing to your name, you don't know what you're going to eat tomorrow. He says, yet you are rich. Why would Jesus say that? Jesus says, in my eyes, you guys are rich. You guys are in better position than the rest of the world. You guys are wealthy. Why? Because they were rich in faith. And Jesus says, you're in a better position. Let me prove it to you. What if today you could trade places with, uh, let's say, Bill Gates, billionaire? Let's say you could trade places. You could literally trade places in life. But it would mean that you would go from, maybe you don't have a lot of money right now, maybe you just lost your job, and you would be one of the richest people on this earth, but you'd have no relationship with God. Would you do it? Would you switch places with some of the richest people on the earth who have no relationship with God? Does it even tempt you? I don't know. There's no way. I would give up my relationship with God for money? Even if I own the whole world. I mean, we're talking about eternity. We're talking about a relationship with God that's going to last forever. I wouldn't even think. It doesn't even, it doesn't even attract me. So what if I have perfect health and, and, and all the money in the world? I would never sacrifice my relationship with Jesus Christ because that is everything to me. And gee, that's what Jesus is saying to the people in Revelation in, in, the book of Smyr- in, the, in the city of Smyrna. He says, you know what? You guys are rich. You guys are the ones that are well off. You guys are in a much better position than they are. You are rich. And he says they are rich because these people, man, they had depth. They had a relationship with God that probably none of us understand. Because of the persecution they went through, they had a deep, deep understanding of God. Because that is what persecution does to you. It strengthens you. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I don't like pain. I don't like pain in myself. I don't like to see other people hurt. Gosh, when people come to my office and they're bawling their eyes out. Man, I had, had, had a little eight-year-old kid in my office this week. Man, just broke my heart. Bawling his eyes out. Telling me he can't sleep at night because his dad had passed away several months ago. And just, I just want to take all the pain away from him. And I remember myself as a kid, nine years old, losing my mom. 
And I just want to take the pain away from this kid. At the same time, I also know that it's those painful times in life that make us who we are. And it's that pain that strengthens us. Just like the pain and persecution strengthen this church, it's those painful times in our lives that actually make us stronger. You know the expression, no pain, no gain? It's true. Because it's those painful times that build us up. As hard as they are, Man, as you look back in life, isn't it those difficult times that have made you stronger? That term, no pain, no gain, is a term we use when we work out. When we lift weights, because you know the purpose of lifting weights? When you lift weights, what you're trying to do is you are tearing your muscle tissue. You are breaking it down. Do you realize you're actually destroying your muscles when you work out? You tear them apart. That is the goal. And that pain and that soreness, what happens is when you tear your muscle tissue apart, it builds back up again, but it comes back stronger and bigger than before. And that's the whole purpose of working out, is to tear up the tissue so that it will come back and be stronger next time. In the same way, the Bible says that when we are torn apart, spiritually, emotionally, when we come back, we come back as stronger people. And speaking of working out, I want to bring up a couple of friends of mine. Uh, Joe and Andy should be outside the door. Um, these are my friends, Joe and Andy. All right. Okay. Looking good, Joe. All right. I want you to look at these two guys. Now, I'm not going to tell you which is which, but one of these guys is a musician and one lifts weights. All right. Take a good look. All right, I'll tell you. Okay. Joe's the musician, all right? I I already told him. Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. Joe's the musician. No matter what he does, you're going to be able to tell he's the musician. He's been working out. He's been playing guitar. He's been lifting weights. Now, the reason why I do this, I want you to keep this mental image in your head. I know you want to forget this image, but try to keep this picture in your head because the truth is, is this is how some people look spiritually. You've got those who haven't gone through a whole lot, and, uh, and you have those who have. Okay, you guys can leave, please. Thanks. Um, I give you that picture because the truth is, is in our lives, you ever, you ever talk to people who at the end of their lives, they're Christians, and you just talk to them for 10 minutes and you go, that guy knows God, or that woman knows the Lord. This person has gone through some experiences. This person has seriously gone through some hard times, but has fought through, and there's some depth to that person. There's other people you can talk to for 10 minutes and realize their walk with God's pretty shallow. Even after maybe 50 years walking with the Lord, they seem like they've escaped persecution. They've had a pretty easy life. I mean, and it's more noticeable spiritually than it is physically. I mean, that that difference that you see in in, in these two, you see it spiritually in other people where you go, wow, this person and some of these people that have come from other countries, missionaries that have been persecuted in prison for their faith, you just go, wow, this guy is deep. This woman has some strength and some, some just spiritual muscles that I don't have. Why? Because she's gone through pain. Because he's gone through pain. He's endured it. He's suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. And that's why this church, Jesus says to them, you guys are rich. 
You guys are strong. You guys are some of the wealthiest people on this earth. Why? Because they endured for the sake of Jesus Christ. They endured his name. And Jesus looks at them and says, wow, these are spiritual giants. That's why in verse 10, he does not reprimand them. This is when he would normally turn the corner and say, okay, you did this well, but here's what you've done wrong. He does that to the other churches, but not to Smyrna. Why? Because they're not doing a whole lot wrong. Look at verse 10. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He says to them, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Can you imagine what that would feel like hearing those words from Jesus? When you know people are right outside the doors, people are walking around everywhere looking for you, wanting to kill you, and Jesus says, don't be afraid? Those would be hard words to hear. How can I not be afraid? I saw what they just did to my brother. I saw what they just did to my dad or my son. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer, meaning it's going to get worse. He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. He's telling this congregation, he goes, look, some of you guys are going to be in prison soon. And that's a test from Satan. Why is that a test? Remember the book of Job? Remember the book of Job when Satan was testing Job? What was that all about? Remember God says about Job, he says, you know, there's no one on earth like him. He is so righteous. He loves me. And what does Satan say to that? He says, okay, God, you know why he loves you? Is because you've given him so much. Look at his life. It's so comfortable. It's so easy. He's got everything. He's rich. He's got a great family. He's got great health. Start taking those things away from him and we'll see how much he loves you. Let's test him. Let's take away all this stuff and see if he still loves you. See, that was Satan's test. Because he knows it's easy for us to love God when we're living here in Simi Valley. Not a whole lot of persecution. Most of us have homes to live in, clothes, food, everything else. It's easy to love God. But what about when the difficult times come? Are you still going to love him? See, that's the test. Jesus says, when you're put in prison, are you still going to love me? That's the test for these boys. It's like that, uh, that expression, this is where you separate the men from the boys. Okay, let's see. When you're in prison and they're torturing you, are you still going to love me? Are you still going to follow me? When someone close to you passes away, are you still going to love me? Are you still going to follow me? When you lose your job, are you still going to love me? Are you still going to follow me? That's the test. Uh, let me ask you something. What if... What if you were told this morning, okay? Because in this room, you've got all sorts of people. I, I don't know most of you. But I'm sure in this room, there are people that are just rock solid in their faith, that have a deep relationship with God. Others who have a very shallow relationship with God. Others, maybe you're searching and just trying to find God and we're glad you're here. But let me ask you something. What if you were told this morning that to come here to Cornerstone Church or any church this morning, was illegal. And what if you knew that coming here to worship God could mean your life? What if you knew, okay, if I go up and I worship today, it's illegal right now, and I could be shot. And maybe there'd be executioners on the outside of the doors when you leave, and you don't know that. Maybe 
If you knew that were a possibility, how many of you would have still shown up? Think about it. If you knew this could have cost your life to come here today, would you still have come? See, because that's when the test would, would show up. That's when we would, in a sense, separate the men from the boys. Are you willing to worship God even if it could cost you your life? Or is this a hobby to you? Just casual, just something you do? Didn't have a whole lot else going on this morning. Or is this something you're willing to die for? See, that's what this church was about in Smyrna. There were no weak Christians there. These were people who said, we're in it, we're in it till death. And Jesus says, good. And he does not say to them, hey, you know what, it's going to get easier. What does he say? He says, you're going to suffer persecution for ten days. You're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. That 10 days, there's a lot of disagreement as to what those 10 days refer to. I don't think they're just 10 literal days, but 10 days in the sense of 10 periods of time is what I believe. No one's one's sure of it. But it's interesting to me that there was a persecution in that city and it took place under the reign of 10 different Roman emperors in succession from one to the other. It started with Nero. You remember the name Nero? He started the persecution in that city, and it ended with Diocletian. Remember Diocletian? That's the one that persecuted St. Nicholas. And there were ten different... It went from Nero to Domitian to Trajan to Adrian to Severus, Maximin, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and then to Diocletian in 284 A.D. And Jesus says, look, I'm not going to take the pain away from you. In fact, the pain's going to get worse. Are you going to follow me? Then he says, be faithful even unto death. And I'll give you the crown of life. Understand that phrase. Jesus is not saying, hey, since you're Christians, I'm going to make your life easy because that's what I do for Christians. No, he said, you stay faithful, even if it gets hard, even if you have to die for my name, and I'll give you the crown of life. I'll give you eternal life. So what if your life here on earth ends? I'm going to give you an eternal life that won't fade away, that cannot be taken from you if you keep persevering. It says, be faithful even unto death. And the interesting thing is shortly after this was written, the leader in that church, you heard the name Polycarp? He was the bishop of Smyrna. The leader of the church at that time, Polycarp, was executed, was martyred for his faith. And he was given an opportunity to recant his faith in Jesus Christ. Before he died, the Roman authorities gave him the opportunity. They said, you can deny Jesus Christ right now and walk away. And let me read to you what Polycarp said in response to that. He said, four score and six years have I served the Lord, and he never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? He said, for 86 years I've been serving God. I've been serving Jesus Christ and He has never done one thing wrong to me. He has shown me nothing but love and forgiveness for 86 years. And you think that I now can look at you and deny His name? He says, forget it, kill me. And that was the attitude of the church there in Smyrna. That's why the flame did not go out when Ephesus had died and their love grew cold and that church was taken. Smyrna kept growing. And their faith remained strong. Why? Because that attitude of Polycarp, their church leader, was the same attitude of the people in that church. They said, we're not going to deny Jesus Christ. 
And those words, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life, those are words that martyrs have held on to for the last 2,000 years. People around the world that say, you know what? I'm not going to deny Jesus no matter how hard it gets. In verse 11, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Remember Revelation 20 talks about the second death, the lake of fire. He says, look, you be faithful even till death. You overcome this persecution and you're not going to have to face the fires of hell. And people have held on to that for centuries and they hold on to it today. Do you realize it's not like this around the world? You guys, uh, travel a little bit, read a little bit. It is not like this. I was reading, if you heard of an organization called The Voice of the Martyrs, they keep track of the Christians around the, the world and the religious persecution that's going on with Christians. I was reading a report of what's going on in some of the other countries. I thought I'd share some of it with you. Some of it I can't share because it's too disgusting. In China right now, probably appropriate I start with them. Um, It says this, in China and in Tibet, more Christians are in prison or under detention here than in any other country in the world. Yet the church grows an estimated 3,000 Chinese come to Christ each day. China's house church movement, which comprises approximately 80% of China's Christians, endures great persecution yet remains committed to the gospel. This church is growing while being persecuted. In Laos, Christians are forced at gunpoint to sign a statement that they will not form a church. In North Korea, citizens are required to worship their dead leader, Kim Sung, and his son, the current dictator, Kim Jong II. Christians compose less than 2% of the population, but although they must practice their faith in deep secrecy and constant danger, God is adding to their numbers daily. In Vietnam today, believers are harassed, beaten, and imprisoned for illegally preaching or organizing evangelistic events. Instead of being weakened by persecution, the faith of Vietnamese Christians is growing and the body of Christ is becoming stronger. It now makes up 9.8% of the population of Vietnam. Nepal. Nepal right now is is the world's only Hindu nation. Last March, the police in, in Nepal attacked a crowd of Christians preparing for an Easter service, beating Christians and injuring more than 2,000. Reverend Gopal Kamagar and Reverend Sukhan Kamagar were killed by policemen. The government claimed the two had been mistaken for communist activists, but other Christian pastors have also been killed in similar quote-unquote mistakes. Pakistan, you've got these militant Islamic forces that have attributed so much violence to the Christians. But despite hardships, it says Christians persevere in love, boldly sharing Christ. In Algeria, members of Muslim rebel groups have been known to march through the town and slit the throats of anyone who has not lived up to their call to Islamic fundamentalism. In Mauritania, freedom of religion is is non-existent. It has been for about a thousand years. It's been Islamic. Anyone who confesses Christ faces the death penalty under the law. People who have simply shown interest in the gospel have been tortured and imprisoned. Only 0.25% of Mauritania is Christian. But can you imagine how strong that 0.25% is? 
In Sudan, families are terrorized, fathers killed, mothers raped, children sold into slavery. Yet in the midst of these atrocities, the body of Christ in Sudan remains strong, worshiping their Savior, leading others to Him. Saudi Arabia, any person who does missions work or converts a Muslim faces jail, expulsion, or execution. Christians have been arrested on false charges, imprisoned, and even beheaded because of their faith. Despite the threat of persecution, the followers of Christ find innovative ways to meet and encourage each other. In India earlier this year, uh, Graham Staines, a missionary, and his two sons were burned to death in their car because of their mission work. In Chechnya, Russia, 65-year-old Alexander Kulikov, leader of the Grozny Baptist Church, is reported to have been beheaded last year and his severed head displayed at a local market. Yes, some of these things get so brutal in Chiapas and Colombia and Ethiopia and Yemen and Cuba and Cyprus and Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Maldives, Tajikistan. You guys can go on and on. Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Egypt, Libya. You guys, the, the list just keeps going. Morocco, Tunisia, Turkey. This is today. This isn't 2,000 years ago. This isn't Smyrna. This is what we know of the earth today. There are Christians every day that are holding on to these words written to the church in Smyrna. We don't understand them. You know, be faithful unto death. We don't get it. Why? Because we're so casual here. We don't understand persecution. Persecution to us is, well, I stopped going to church because they changed their style of music. Oh, yeah. Man, how'd you get through that? You didn't kill yourself? Man. Or I, didn't, I couldn't get baptized because I would have got my hair wet. Or I had to speak in front of people. Ooh. Yeah, don't suffer that for Christ. You guys, I was pretty discouraged this week over some things that were said, and I, I just thought to myself afterwards, that's all it takes to discourage me? I am so weak. We're so weak here in this country. You know, I, the little things discourage us from walking with God. A difficult marriage, oh, I forget it. You know, we just give up on things so quickly. When there are believers all around the world that are being tortured right now, and they say, we will be faithful even until death. Even if it kills me. Look, you guys, for some of you to be faithful this week, some of you may lose maybe your reputation. Some of you this week may, in order to be faithful to Jesus Christ, you may lose some friends. You may lose some money to do what is right in your business to be faithful to Jesus Christ. You may lose time. You may lose sleep. And Jesus Christ says to you, even if you have to lose your life, Stay faithful to me. It's going to be well worth it. You guys, how faithful have you been when life was difficult and the test came? Are you faithful to the point of death? You guys, I want to pray right now, but I don't want to pray for us. I want to pray for the believers around the world right now that are really suffering. Will you join me? Oh, Father, I, I just confess I'm weak. As a Christian, Lord, and as a pastor of this church, I can be so weak sometimes. God, when I think of the believers around the world who are truly suffering for your name, God, our prayers go up to them right now. And I beg you, God, that somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, that the people that are being persecuted for their faith right now would feel my prayer and the prayers of everyone here in this room and in the satellite room. God, 
that all of us right now, God, our prayers are for them. We pray for the men who will be executed today for following you. I pray that they will be faithful all the way up to the point of their death. I pray for the families that will lose family members to stand for your faith, for belief in you. God, would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them right now and show them that it's going to be worth it on the other end? God, I thank you for examples like St. Nicholas. I thank you for examples like the church in Smyrna. I thank you for the examples of the martyrs all around the world today. I pray that we would learn from them. God, as we give to you right now, as we give to you financially, it is such a small sacrifice compared to theirs. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom in how to spend our money and how to help these Christians around the world, not just selfishly our own church. Give us wisdom, Lord. Help us to become like those strong spiritual giants around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's a good challenge.